for third grade and younger are being dismissed. Acts 4. If you are using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, you'll find today's text on page 577. 577 of the black Bibles that are provided there. We'll be considering Acts 4, verses 1 through 22. Acts 4 and verses 1 through 22 this morning. I will read our text of Scripture aloud as you follow along, and then we'll ask for God's help and look at this text of Scripture. This is the Word of God. Now, as they spoke in the temple, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to him, Rulers and people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to all, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now is there salvation, nor nor is there salvation in any other, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a, noble mir- that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. 
finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Lord, as we approach this year's word, we are humbled before it, knowing that we cannot understand your word without your help. We pray that your spirit might take it and apply it to our hearts, change us through it. In Christ's precious name, amen. This week, March 7th of 1680, the doors of the First Baptist Church of Boston were nailed shut by the local magistrates because the church would not conform to the religious teaching of the state. You see, there had been a law in 1645 banning Baptists in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, calling them, quote, the incendiaries of the commonwealths and the infectors of the persons in main matters of religion and the troublers of churches in all places. (laughs) Many Americans think that religious persecution has never taken place in this land, and a a study of history will quickly reveal that 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 is not the case. But of course, they were not to be deterred, and they continued meeting outside, which in Texas in March isn't too bad, but in Massachusetts is a little bit more dicey. And so demonstrating their dedication to meeting with one another and continuing forward the teaching of scriptures, they continued to meet. You see, God's people have always faced opposition. They have always come up against the trouble of the world surrounding them. Those of you that have been with us for a while know that we are journeying through the book of Acts, and a wonderful and exciting book it has been so far. Uh, Jesus goes back to heaven, and in the early pages of Acts, tells his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, which descends then in chapter 2 with all of these marvelous miracles that take place as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the followers of Jesus who begin to spread the gospel even with miraculous uh, verification. And then we see here in chapter 3, as we saw last week, there's a lame man who is healed. This is the beginning of the church kind of launching into the world. And so some wonderful things have happened in the early chapters of Acts. And according to Acts 3.10, those who are watching are filled with wonder and amazement. The people are excitedly praising God, we are told. This once lame man in our text from last week, verse 8, was walking and leaping and praising God. Back in chapter 2, verse 47, it said that the believers were having favor with all the people. People are believing the message of Jesus, and it is exciting. Everyone is excited. Oh, wait, not so fast. Not everyone is excited about the spread of the message of Jesus. You see, there is this religious establishment who, in large part, were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, and they are not so happy. They are not rejoicing in the gospel of Christ going forward. Which leads us now to chapter 4, 
where we see the first opposition to this fledgling early church. In this chapter, and really throughout the book of Acts, we learn that you and I should be faithful to the message of Christ in the face of oppositions. Be faithful to the message of Christ in the face of opposition. Now, what does that look like here in this chapter, and what lessons can we learn as we are called upon to be faithful to the message of Christ in the face of opposition? Well, we observe here, as we observe many places in Scripture, that we can expect opposition if we are faithfully speaking the message of Christ. Opposition can be expected. It can be counted on. We know that if we are faithful to the message of Christ, opposition will in time come. Now, if you studied your Bible at all, you know that this is the case. You know that the New Testament and really the entire history of God's people presents again and again opposition to the good news of Jesus. In fact, Jesus even told his disciples that this kind of opposition would come. You remember John 15, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you, Jesus says to his followers. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, if they keep my word, they will keep yours also. So Jesus makes this point that, that those who follow after him will endure persecution. It will endure opposition. Bonhoeffer, in one of his classic works on discipleship, said this, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. The Augsburg Confession defined the church as the community of those who, quote, are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake, unquote. Bonhoeffer went on to say discipleship means allegiance to the sufferings of Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. And so the early church, even in the early chapters of the book of Acts, bump up against this reality that opposition to the message of Christ can be expected. It will come. Now, why is this? Why ought believers expect suffering when we faithfully speak the message of Christ? The same message that rejoices so many hearts also deeply offends others. You see, this message is offensive. It, it, is, it is deeply revolting in some profound ways. In fact, Paul calls the preaching of Christ foolishness to those who are perishing. And in this passage, we see some of the reasons why the gospel is so offensive. It's offensive because it threatens man's agenda. Oh, do we ever see this in this passage? So you'll notice that at the very beginning of chapter 4, you have a, a couple labels that are given. Uh, you see the term Sadducees, you see the term elders, 
you see scribes, um, and all of these together here in verse 5 are gathered together, and this group would have been known as the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the religious political power body of the day. This was the aristocracy that ran things in the religious order as, as the Hebrews were under the, the Roman governance. And they had really power over the temple up to and even including their own kind of temple police force. Their own, their own enforcement agency that was the, the temple police, if, if you want to use today's terminology. So they had arrest powers. You notice in verse 1, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, we'll get to that, that word in a minute, came upon them. Verse 3, they put them in custody. So they arrest them. Now it's, it's getting late in the evening, so they don't actually conduct a trial until the next day. Verse 5, the rulers, the elders, the scribes. These are the three classes that composed the Sanhedrin. The rulers were the chief priests who were, who were Sadducees. The scribes were usually Pharisees. We meet them uh, in other places um, that were, uh, uh, of course, very opposed to Christ. And the elders, so 24 priests, generally the complexion of the Sanhedrin was 24 priests, 24 elders, 22 scribes. And in verse 6, it says, Annas, the high priest... Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the rest of the family of the high priest. Now, let me explain this. Annas, at this point, is technically not the high priest. Caiaphas was. But Caiaphas was Annas's son-in-law. And so Annas continued to exercise the authority of the high priest and was often referred to still as the high priest because he was the power broker, right? He was the patriarch of the family and uh, was very much still in control. The, this is the power class. I mean, this is the establishment that was not happy about the preaching of Christ. Now, you'll notice in verse 13 that as they dialogue with, with Peter, they make an observation about Peter and John. It says in verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, watch this now, uneducated, and untrained men. These are old words that are only here in the New Testament and a couple places in Corinthians. Um, it doesn't mean that they were ignorant. The, the, the old King James actually translates it ignorant, and it's not the, the way in which we think. It is simply saying that they are laymen. Right? They are not office holders. They are a private person. So, so, so these same words were used of a soldier who was not an officer. He, he was not skilled, he was not schooled in the establishment of the day. And so it's not to say that Peter was an ignorant man. In fact, many have studied his writings, and it's apparent that, that Peter was, in some measure, educated. He was intelligent. He, he did have the command, of very strong command of the Greek language. Yet, yet these men are looking at them and saying, now, wait a minute, something's off here. They haven't graduated from the Ivy League schools. And that's essentially what they're saying. These are not the ones that are trained in the, in the aristocracy. They do not hold a position of power. And yet they are strong. They are bold. 
They are clear in their presentation. These men do not respect Peter and John. They recognize that something is unusual about them, but their pedigree is not what they expect. Let me just, let me just point this out. We should be studied. We should be learned. We, we should take every advantage of the opportunities that God gives us to improve our knowledge of the Word, to, to increase our skills. And in fact, there are times that God will give us opportunities even to gain credentialing or credibility in an academic arena. But let me just warn you that if you are trying to chase the approval of the world while still being faithful to God, you're chasing the wind. Ultimately, in any ultimate sense, you will never be respected by the world as you are faithful to Christ. These men didn't graduate from the Ivy League schools. And these Rulers are saying, these men are, are, are not of us. They are not of our elite class. It says here in the text that they, they were asking. The idea is that they were continuing. It's an imperfect tense. They, they were grilling them, if you will. By what power or by what name do you do this? And the word order there in the Greek actually puts the you at the very end of the sentence. It's kind of this scornful emphasis. By what power or, or what name is this done by you? In other words, they're saying, like, who do you think you are, Peter, John? I mean... It, by, by what authority does someone like you think that you can go about troubling the temple like this? There is a, even in their language, even in the way they word it, there is this, there is this disdain that these, these backward hicks would dare come up to the temple and stand toe-to-toe with the religious, educated establishments. So the gospel is offensive. It's offensive because it threatens man's agenda. Those that were ruling in that way, those that had established themselves by currying favor with Rome, were not happy because this message of Jesus threatened their power structure. The Pharisees might have been motivated by genuine religious conviction, albeit misguided. The Sadducees were not. It was a pure, unmitigated motive of greed for power. You know, the gospel is still offensive because it threatens man's agenda. People, people want to be saved from, from condemnation, but they don't want to be saved from that which brings condemnation, namely sin. So a gospel that calls us to repentance is offensive. A gospel that, that calls me to turn from my way from my understanding, from my agenda, from my plan for my life, 
and submit to God to admit that he is right and I am wrong, that is offensive. A gospel that calls for repentance, to say that that I am wrong, that I am the enemy with God, that I, I can't live life on my own terms, that I don't get to define who I am, but God does. That is an offensive gospel. It threatens man's agenda. We have a world that wants to live by its own agenda. And I believe, by the way, that this is the area that will introduce persecution eventually in the United States. You see, there's a certain wing of the political spectrum that has decided that everyone must give wholesale endorsement to the sexual revolution. And if you do not only tolerate, but you act, if you don't actually celebrate sexual liberty, that you are somehow a bigot. You are, you are the immoral one that must be put down. I think this will be the avenue that Christians will receive the most persecution because it is offensive to the world's agenda. Now, there are certain aspects of Christianity that people are, are willing to acknowledge are sin. But when we hold to a biblical ethic of sexual conduct, that is offensive to the world. It threatens their, their quote-unquote liberty to do as they would like. And by the way, don't think that this is unique to one political party. Do not take comfort in another political party being in power because the, the fact is that either party will happily run roughshod over biblical Christianity if it stands in the way of their political agenda. The gospel is offensive because it threatens man's agenda. It is further offensive because it violate man, violates man's thinking. So I told you that I would, I would give you some insights on the Sadducees here in a moment. We see them mentioned in the text as well. The Sadducees were kind of the political party who dominated the Sanhedrin. Right? The Sanhedrin, again, is that ruling body. There are, there are different parties. There is a kind of a right wing and a left wing. There are the, the, um, the religious, zealous, um, legalistic Pharisees. That's the right wing. And there are the, the liberal Sadducees. That's the left wing. And they're all together on this ruling body that uh, is more pragmatic than anything else. The Sadducees, the party that was in control, had really cozied up to the Roman Empire and had made for themselves a, um, a succession of power through that. They were the materialistic rationalists of their day. These were the religious liberals who did not believe in the supernatural. Um, they didn't believe in particular, in the resurrection. They didn't believe in eternal life. And that's why verse 2, notice it carefully says, they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus, what? The resurrection of the dead. That is the rub. 
and point of fact is the hinge pin of the gospel, right? So, so they oppose this because they are preaching this resurrection of the dead. And so they confront them. In fact, in a response to that, verse 17, um, they forbid them to speak, what, in this name. Verse 18, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or to teach in the name of Jesus. And remember that we said last week, the name of Jesus encompasses all that who he is and what he has done. Most especially the resurrection. And so that is not okay with them. Do not preach in this name, they tell them. The gospel is offensive here because it goes against their thinking. It goes against their, their religious dogma. It goes against the very things that they deny. Now, this is still true of the gospel. The gospel is still offensive. This notion that there is a Savior who was resurrected does not comport with the, with the, uh, the intellectualism of our day, the rationalism of our day. It is still opposed as untenable. The gospel still offends because it violates man's naturalistic thinking. Now, of course, the gospel will offend. We must be careful that we are not the ones that are offensive. But when we are faithful to the gospel, it will cut against the grain of man's thinking. One example of this is the way in which people um, oppose the message of the gospel in respect to how we access God's forgiveness. We talked about this a little bit during our discipleship hour. Proverbs 14 says, There's a way that seems right to a man. But the end of that way is death. Mankind thinks that in order to get to God, we must, we must make our own way. We must pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, which really taps into our pride. Because if we have somehow done the right things to get to God, look how... Look how good we are. Look how well we've done. And so a gospel that denies work salvation is offensive. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace you've been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That cuts against the grain of the very thing that we want to think about ourselves, that we can earn favor with God. And so we know that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I wonder, have you ever bumped up against this reality in your own life? As you have tried to be faithful and tried to genuinely give people the gospel, have you found that some people cannot stomach, they, they will not tolerate the truths of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done. Has it been brought home to you that, that as gracious as you try to be, as nice as you may try to present the gospel, as nicely as you may try to present the gospel, some will be offended 
because the gospel calls us to turn from our way, our own self-dependence. We will meet with opposition because the gospel offends. So we can expect that as we faithfully speak the message of Christ. So how do we respond? Well, we're told very clearly by Scripture and we're reminded by this text that we must meet opposition by faithfully speaking the message of Christ. We must continue to speak that message. We must continue to faithfully speak the message of Christ. So, so we actually be, receive the opposition because of the faithful message, but then we respond by continuing to speak that message. So Peter says the very thing that the Sadducees do not want to hear. Look at verse 10. Now, I already told you what the Sadducees have a problem with theologically, right? So notice verse 10 and keep that in mind. Whom you, by the way, that is emphasized in the original language, whom you crucified. Now, that's true. I mean, that is absolutely true. This council that Peter and John are standing before is the same council that opposed Jesus and eventually got him crucified albeit under the sovereign control of God. So you crucified him. Watch this now, verse 10, whom God raised from the dead. I mean, he is just taking it to them. I mean, when you know what the Sadducees believe and the whole problem with his message, what you don't see is Peter going in there and tiptoeing around the issue. Right? He comes right out and says, you crucified him, but God raised him up. In fact, he doesn't stop there. He presses the case further because he pl applies the significance of the resurrection. You see, because of the resurrection, Jesus is qualified. In fact, he is exclusively qualified to be the Savior. Look at verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief Cornerstone. So Peter now links Jesus' resurrection and his exaltation to a prophecy that is found in Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28, which prophesied the rejection of the one who would become the most important. This, this chief stone of God's building, his work is all built on Jesus Christ. So, Peter gives this theoretical illustration, he links it to Old Testament prophecy, but what does that mean? Well, he tells us in verse 12, look at verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, right? This one that was rejected is now the, the, the hinge pin, he is the cornerstone, he is all that the gospel, the good news, rises on. So, because of that, there's not salvation in anyone else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter prosecutes this case very strongly. He takes the message of the gospel and he puts it right in the face of these men who had rejected Christ. Now, the exclusivity of Christ is offensive to our pluralistic world. It is offensive to a lost and dying world. I mean, the world is okay with you laying Jesus down alongside the world's way. 
But the name of Jesus, the, the true gospel of Jesus, will not allow that. There's no salvation in anyone else. We are not all on different sides of the mountain making our way up to the same God who we just call by different names. No, no, Jesus says there is one way to God, right? Jesus said this during his life in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in case you didn't catch that, the clarity of that statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is what Peter is now reiterating in our text this morning. You see, a Jesus that hangs in a picture on your wall is fine for the world. But one who demands your time, your loyalty, your obedience, your humility, that kind of a Jesus will never do to a lost and dying world. And so then Peter gives his answer. And in so doing, he instructs us a little bit on some ethical complexities. So in verse 18, it says they called them, right? So they do their little powwow. They say, you guys go over there, we need to talk. Okay, come back now. Verse 18, they called them, they commanded them not to speak at all or to teach in the name of Jesus. All right, so we got this figured out. Um, we can't say anything about this miracle. We can't deny the miracle. Like, everybody knows about it, so just don't preach anymore in Jesus' name. Don't give the gospel is essentially what they're saying, right? The, the name of Jesus, all that is wrapped up in who he is and what he's done. So, so don't preach in that name anymore. It's okay, they say, to be religious, to, to acknowledge God, just don't be too specific about it. Does that sound like any culture you've heard of? Right? I mean, that's what they're saying. Is like, yeah, the, the religion thing is okay. We're, we're good with religion. Just don't insist that yours is the only way. Just don't insist that Jesus is the means to God, right? They call and they say, don't speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So what do Peter and John say? Now, there's some emphasized pronouns in here, and I'm going to try to point them out. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you emphasized judge. All right, you guys go ahead and try to figure out whether we should obey you or God. Yeah, you work on that one for a minute. Right, go ahead, try to figure that out. He says, but he goes on, he says, but we emphasized, we've, we already know what we're going to do. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. As for us, we're, we're going to preach the gospel. <laughs> and so I love verse 21. So they threatened them some more. <laughs> right? Verse 20. And they threaten them further. They let them go, finding no way to punish them. So we're going to threaten you some more, just in case you didn't get it the first time. And then we're going to let you go, because there's really not anything else we can do. Peter's very bold here. And he continues to speak the message of Christ faithfully. He continues to give the truth, even the truth that they did not want to hear. Peter Cartwright was an American Methodist circuit-riding preacher in the Midwest. He lived from 1785 to 1872. And he was known for preaching very boldly and very clearly. One Sunday morning, President Andrew Jackson 
came to hear Cartwright preach. He was pulled aside and told that President Jackson was there, which was intended to serve for him as a caution about what he would say. And so, with that information, he got up in the pulpit and he said the following words. I understand President Andrew Jackson is here, and I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. <laughs> my friends, may we, may we be kind, but may we be clear. May we be bold in our understanding of the gospel and presenting it to a world around us. And so how do we stand in the face of opposition? How do we continue? Well, we continue to faithfully endure because of this same message that we preach, because of the message of Christ. I want you to notice verse 13. This is just a wonderful little phrase that's just kind of almost tucked away in here. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized what? That they had been with Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, keep in mind, this group had had Jesus stand before them just a few months ago. And when Peter and John stand there before them, they say, these guys, they're like Jesus. They've, they've spent time with, with Jesus. Jesus, who you remember, spoke with authority. And they marveled about that. Now these men speak with boldness and confidence and clarity about the message of Jesus Christ because they had spent time with Jesus. And their, their pedigree didn't matter so much. The diplomas that were, handing, uh, that were hanging on their wall didn't matter so much because they knew the Savior and they said, we cannot help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. It's evident that they had been with Jesus. Do you, ever, do you ever observe someone and you say, boy, they remind me of their parents. Like they talk like them, they gesture like them, they, they, they speak like them, they respond like them. Right? You ever spend time with, with people and you just, they just remind me of their parents? Well, I don't think the Sadducees are intending this as a compliment. I don't, I don't think the Sanhedrin are sitting there thinking they're like Jesus in a positive way. But what a positive statement it is about Peter and John, isn't it? They had been with Jesus. They had about them this, this aroma, if you will. It reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. When Paul says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge. So the knowledge of Jesus through us is like this, this aroma that goes out. Now, now watch with this, the response to this aroma. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. When we're around other believers, what a beautiful aroma that is. You, you smell like Jesus. <laughs> You just, you smell like Jesus. What, what, that's so wonderful. But, 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 among those who are perishing, 
To one where the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. You ever go into a, a house of, of maybe someone from a different culture and um, they're, they're burning some incense or maybe they've cooked some food and you just go, that's just a weird smell. Just, that's just strange. But they think it smells wonderful. I mean, that's just a wonderful smell, right? I mean, that's kind of that's what Paul is saying here. It's like, when you smell like Jesus, some people go, what a wonderful smell. And other people go, that's a weird smell. For one, it's the smell of death. And for another, it's the smell of life. I wonder how much do we smell like Jesus? I mean, when people are around us, do they, do they think it, it's obvious they've been with Jesus? And that's the response that Peter and John get. And so our, our challenge for all of us this morning is we are going to face opposition. We are going to face difficulty. We are going to face challenges to the gospel that we preach. How faithful will we continue to be? I wonder this morning if it's something as simple as the scoffing of your coworkers. I wonder if it's maybe not getting that promotion and you wonder in the back of your mind, does it have something to do with the fact that I represent Jesus? I wonder what kind of scorn have you received from your family and friends because you are now a follower of Jesus Christ. You're serious about obeying the scriptures. You're serious about the gospel of Christ. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution because that aroma, that aroma stinks to some. But it's a beautiful smell of Christ. I wonder this morning, can we say that we are, we are faithful? We're not hedging on the gospel. We're not, we're not cutting corners. We're not shaving off the hard edges of the gospel. I don't mean by that, of course, that we are personally offensive, that we're trying to offend, but are we, are we clear, are we bold in the gospel? This, more, this week, as you go your way, you can expect opposition if you faithfully meet, preach Christ, if you're faithful in the message of Christ, and that's because it, it threatens man's agenda. It, it violates man's thinking. But when you do, meet that opposition by continuing to be faithful in speaking the message of Christ. Don't hedge on the gospel. Don't compromise the gospel. Don't be, don't be uh, offensive or aggravating in your own person, but be clear on the gospel. And you can endure. All that Christ went through for us is so much more than any of us will ever endure. Be faithful in enduring opposition because of the message of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word.